Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 76, The Army of the Nile. The team of Commander-in-Chief Middle East Archibald Wavell, who shielded his subordinates from Churchill's impatience, General Jumbo Wilson, whose organizational ability lent reality and a sense of professionalism to Operation Compass, and, of course, General Richard O'Connor, with his tactical leadership, was able to push the Italians out of Egypt in only a matter of days. It's a pity for the British that this team would not last much longer. Also, all three of these men had studied the tactics of General Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson during the U.S. Civil War and knew that, although their force was smaller, that did not mean that they could not be the aggressor as well as the overall victor in this battle. And, much like the Confederate forces, Wavell later noted that Britain's strength was fighting improvisationally and not in a set-piece way as the Germans did. And, for the moment, there was no long-term strategy. The British in North Africa were simply putting out the closest fire, only to move on to the next most threatening one. The problem was, the men in the desert and their superior back in London did not agree on which fire burned the hottest. As for Churchill, his praise of those men in North Africa came quickly after the fall of Sidi Barani. Quote, the Army of the Nile, a name chosen for propaganda purposes, has rendered glorious service to the empire and to our cause. Unquote. But honestly, not long after uttering these words, would the British leader return to attempting to dictate to Wavell what to do and how to do it. But there was a subtle difference this time, post the fall of Sidi Barani. Wavell had no problems taking orders from the civilian government, but he simply kept for himself the prerogative of how his orders should be carried out. As Wavell had ordered O'Connor to give up the 4th Indian Division, General Wilson was putting those orders into practice, using now-empty ships from convoys. Wilson was readying to move the 4th Indian to Port Sudan, as Churchill instructed. But at the very same time, he was also to move McKay's 6th Australian Division forward to keep the pressure on the Italians. It must be said, it's doubtful that Churchill fully appreciated this balancing act. The Prime Minister made it clear that he wanted O'Connor's forces to continue moving west and invade Cyrenaica, and the Little Terrier, as the Australians called O'Connor, was only too happy to oblige. But he had two major concerns. First, the growing number of Italian prisoners standing around stretched his already meager logistical resources. He needed to get them further east before they realized not that their heart was in fighting anymore, that there were many more of them in the area, and they might be able to overrun their captors. The second was that O'Connor did not want to lose his well-trained men of the 4th Indian. He had worked hard in readying them for desert combat, and their replacements, McKay's 6th Australian Division, on the other hand, had just finished their training and were not even fully equipped. But it came down to this. If Wavell was going to move the 4th Indian out, they had to go when the convoy ships were ready. It was simple as that. 
As we covered last time, by December 13th, the only Italians left in Egypt was a rear guard at Solom, just inside the Egyptian border. But they knew their position was untenable, and so evacuated on December 16th. They made for the fortified perimeter around the Port Bardia, which is located less than 20 miles north by northwest from Solom, as the North African coast turns sharply northward after Solom. On the Italian's heels was Krieg's 7th Armored Division, along with the 16th British Brigade. But as they could not catch up to the Italians before they crossed into the safety of the perimeter, those British forces positioned themselves on the road that connected Bardia with Tobruk further west. No Italian reinforcements would be making their way into Bardia's perimeter now. It was now Marshal Graziani's move. He told the 10th Army to hold Bardia and Tobruk, but then didn't like his forces split against the aggressive British and suggested to Mussolini that Bardia be abandoned so his forces could focus on protecting the port of Tobruk. But Il Duce said no. The British were to be resisted at both places. It's not sure if Il Duce really thought his men could keep both locations out of British hands, but it would take time for the British to assault and take both port cities. And time was what Mussolini needed, as he was having reinforcements sent to North Africa. So, General Bergonzoli, otherwise known as Electric Whiskers, because of his red facial hair, was ordered to resist British desire for Bardia. He would use his 23rd Italian Corps, made up of the 1st and 2nd Blackshirt Divisions, the 62nd Marmarica, and the 63rd Serene Divisions. Altogether, this gave Bergonzoli 45,000 men and about 400 guns. Unfortunately for the British, their intelligence led them to believe that the Bardia garrison was demoralized and put their number at about half of its true strength. On December 16th, the Italians in Bardia were anything but ready to surrender their post. In response to a message sent from Mussolini to himself to bolster the Bardia garrison, Bergonzoli replied, quote, I have today repeated to my troops your message, simple and unequivocal. In Bardia we are, and here we stay. Unquote. And Electric Whiskers seemed justified in his confidence. After all, the defenses of Bardia were modern and had been recently finished. For example, a well-laid-out anti-tank ditch, some 12 feet wide by 4 feet deep, went around the entire perimeter. This ditch was reinforced by dense wire entanglements and minefields, which were in themselves covered by two lines of mutually supporting pillboxes that were made of reinforced concrete and steel shuttered. And these were covered by artillery positions from the fortress itself. At no point, once the British were inside the perimeter, if they got that far, would they not be exposed to some form of Italian fire. And time was on the Italian side. Italian reinforcements were coming to North Africa, and everyone knew Hitler had to be planning something as well. Bardia had been well stocked with supplies and ammunition, whereas O'Connor had to bring everything overland. And the more he won, the longer this route would be. As for Wavell and O'Connor, 
They surmised that they had three options for going at Bardia. One, they could try to induce the men inside to surrender. And in that vein, Wavell was having a proclamation printed out, spelling out the hopelessness of the defender's position. In fact, O'Connor had already tried his own bluff at Bardia, with Krieg's 7th Armored, but it didn't pan out. Another option was to engage Bardia full-on and take the garrison. But O'Connor could not foresee how that would end, how many casualties he would have, and what state his reducing number of Matildas would be in. So that was not chosen. The last idea seemed the best, and so Wavell and O'Connor got to work. The idea was to bring up McKay's Australians and have them cover the area south and west of Bardia's perimeter. And, as the coast ran north by northwest behind the garrison, that left the area to the north of it open. There, Krieg's 7th Armour would wait, at a distance from the perimeter. The Australians would push up from the south, the Royal Navy would pitch in with a stressful bombardment of their own from the east, and hopefully the Italians would bug out, head north, and then fall victim to Krieg's armour. Helping the Allied forces was the very length of Bardia's perimeter, which stretched out in three miles in three directions from the port city. So, the Italians couldn't know where the main assault would come from, which allowed McKay to pick a spot, focus his Australians, overrun the position, while other forces exercised a diversionary attack. The 16th Australian Brigade, led by Brigadier A.S. Allen, reached the perimeter on December 19th, and it was placed west-southwest of Bardia, just under the road that led to Tobruk. And the 16th was finding out, like everyone else, that the rumors of demoralized troops on the other side of the anti-tank ditch was incorrect. For days, McKay aggressively probed the Italians' defenses and concluded on December 24th that a set-piece operation was probably needed for victory. O'Connor quickly agreed and recommended that McKay use infantry to pierce the perimeter, throw up some kind of bridge for the 18 remaining infantry tanks to cross the ditch, and then use the men to clear a path through the minefield. After that, the fighting would still be hard, but mostly academic, as the Italians still had no answer for the heavy infantry tanks. O'Connor ended his message with, take your time and get it right, but don't waste time. Besides keeping the Italians off balance, O'Connor was spending the majority of his time overseeing logistics. Supplying his men was a Herculean task, and he ruthlessly used every captured Italian truck or vehicle he could get his hands on. On December 27th, Brigadier S. Savage's 17th Australian Brigade made it to the perimeter and relieved the 16th which had been conducting patrols and minor raids, testing the Italians' determination to resist. By now, the situation was thus. Bardia hugged the coast with the sea to its east. It was surrounded on three sides by its perimeter that stuck out in three miles from the town. The road to Tobruk, which went off in a west-by-northwest direction, or at the 10 o'clock position, was covered by the 7th Armored Division. But just out of sight of the Italians. 
Meanwhile, the areas west and south of the Italian stronghold was held by the 16th and 17th Brigades, with the 19th Australian Brigade held in reserve. And O'Connor had all but made it clear to McKay that he wanted the 19th saved for an attack on Tobruk, once Bardia had fallen. But facing the Australians was the highly motivated and well-equipped 62nd and 63rd Divisions. They had promised each other to make good their commander's claim to Mussolini. By December 28th, McKay decided he had enough information from his brigade's patrols to form his plan of attack. The initial penetration would be conducted by Allen's 16th Australian Brigade. Their point of entry would be between the two main roads, which, due to the angle of the coastline behind Bardia, put the attack directly in front of the port town, almost dead center of its entire perimeter. The ground there was higher than in other places, which would help his limited number of guns, 120 out of the 154 that belonged to 13 Corps. Also, their Matildas coming in behind the men would be rolling downhill, anything to help increase their speed. Another reason to attack here was because British intelligence, and they got this one right, said that this location was where one Italian division stopped and another started. McKay was hoping that this would lead to a bit of confusion as to which division was responsible for holding the line at the point of attack. After the 16th pierced the perimeter, Savage's 17th Brigade, using two of its three battalions, would enter the breach, but then turn and head in a southeasterly direction and roll up the Italians manning the southern half of the line. Literally, the defenders would be facing south, along with their guns, while they were attacked on their right flank. To keep the Italians in the southern perimeter honest, and distracted, as they were about to be attacked on their right side, Savage's 3rd Battalion would engage in a diversionary attack in front of those same Italians. As McKay was still hoping for an Italian surrender, or a retreat to the north, he was allowed to use Brigadier Robertson's 19th Australian Brigade as a reserve unit to be stationed within sight of the Italians. What the Italians manning the line couldn't know was that the 19th was not allowed to engage unless in an extreme emergency. The date of attack was set for January 2nd, but then moved back 24 hours to allow for more preparation. Again, this was classic O'Connor. Hurry and get ready, but don't attack until you are ready. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. 
I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com The overwhelming advantage that the Italians had in guns would be hopefully reduced by British naval and air might. And right before the attack, McKay was given the good news that he now had 20 heavy infantry takes to command due to round-the-clock repairs. When the attack started, the tanks under 7th Armored Division, stationed to the north, would also join in and bombard any structures they could find. Again, like at the beginning of Operation Compass, confusion was to be caused and then taken advantage of. It should be noted that the Italians had over two months to stalk City Barani and Bardia, and that O'Connor was using two and a half weeks of supplies to do the reverse. The time of the attack was set for 5.30 a.m., January 3rd. As the Australians were about to launch themselves at the Italians, it's worth noting that this would be the last time they would charge into battle so laden with supplies. Each man wore a woolen uniform, after all, the nights were cold, with a sleeveless jerkin under or over the tunic. Most had on a greatcoat with the bottom half pinned back for ease of movement. They all wore steel helmets, had a respirator hanging around their neck, and in various pockets had 150 rounds of ammunition, one or two grenades, three days of rations of tinned beef and biscuits. They were also expected to carry picks and shovels, but most left them behind or soon discarded them as the fighting got underway. But this was thinking carried over from the Great War. Now things happened much faster, and distances were far greater. Speed and lightness of equipment were now the order of the day. At 5.30 a.m. on January 3rd, the 1st Battalion of Brigadier Allen's 16th Brigade made for the perimeter. The Bangalore torpedoes they took with them quickly negated the bobbed wire fencing. Once the fence was down, sappers moved ahead to clear a path through the minefield, as well as filling in a section of the ditch for the approaching Matildas. All of this was carried out before the sun rose, and it may have been the pre-dawn darkness that contributed to a lackluster Italian reaction. But surely, the defenders heard the Bangalores explode. At 6.35 a.m., the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the 16th Brigade entered the rupture, along with their infantry tanks, and then began to create an ever-widening arc as those forces spread it out. The idea was for the arc on the farthest right to eventually make contact with the 17th Australian Brigade as it penetrated further to the southeast. Their attack was to begin at 11.30 a.m. As the two battalions of the 16th spread out, individual platoons came into contact with the defenders, at some of their strong points. But, as it happened in other battles, some defensive units fought tenaciously, while others gave up, practically, without a fight. 
This lack of determination can at least be understood when, like their comrades at Nebewa and the Tamar camps, the vaulted Italian artillery units saw their shells bounce off the heavy eye tanks and instead go straight up into the early morning sky. Still, like previous clashes, the Italian artillery batteries fought the hardest. But despite their valor, the thickness of the tank's armor decided the battle. Early in the morning, one counterattack was organized as six Italian medium tanks grouped together to try to split the ever-growing arc. But Australian two-pounder anti-tank guns easily pierced the tank's thin armor and made a bloody mess of those inside. By 8.30 a.m., the 16th Brigade had done its job. The perimeter was seriously compromised. But then there arose a chance for the Italians to yet claim a victory and for the Aussies to lose everything they had gained. As the two battalions exited the perimeter, they were bringing back with them about 8,000 Italian prisoners. And as the British thought that there were only 20,000 men inside to begin with, McKay's men believed that the battle for Bardia was all but over. A concentrated Italian counterattack at this point could have made a huge difference. Still, despite the Australians' belief, under O'Connor's overall command, everyone knew that prudence was to be observed. The battle plan against the Italians, as is, would continue. The next part of McKay's plan now called for the 16th to back far enough away to avoid any direct contact and for the remaining Matildas to support the 17th Brigade of Savage as they readied to attack further south. But wanting to keep the Italians' head down as the tanks refueled and shifted south, the battleships Barham, Valiant, and Warspite, along with seven destroyers, took aim at the Italians' rear positions and began a 45-minute barrage with their 15-inch guns. And even after that, the Monitor, Terror, and her gunboats kept up the pressure with sporadic fire for the rest of the day. As soon as they were ready, Savage's men of the 17th Australian came at their section of the perimeter, but they did not have the luck of the 16th. Actually, the 17th had been on the move since noon the previous day, trying to get into position. The idea was to hook up with the infantry tanks at a specific point and then move in. But the tanks were late and fewer in number than promised. The 17th's ill luck continued, as the 62nd and 63rd Italian divisions, especially their artillery batteries, remained calm and fought back tenaciously, and only gave ground after making the Australians pay for it with casualties, wounded and dead. Still, the writing was on the wall by the end of the day. Despite the tough stand of the Italians in the south, Bardia's overall defensive position was now untenable. By that night, McKay had already given out his plans for the next day's assault. At 11.30 the next morning, Allen's 16th Brigade would push on to Bardia, while the 17th and 19th Brigades cleared the stubborn southern sector. Although these troops had very few I-tanks to support them, the back of the defenders was already mostly broken. As the 16th got closer to the town the next day, the resistance lessened as the Australians ran into technical and support troops, as opposed to the frontline fighters of the day before. 
as if crossing a magic line in the sand. These less experienced troops surrendered in large numbers, and the 16th entered Bardia by 4 p.m. And their luck continued. As they had made good time in reaching the city, the defenders were unable to destroy the water supply, much less anything else. Despite the latest success of Operation Compass, Bergonzoli, the Italian commander, managed to escape. But if Electric Whiskers had been waiting on the Italian Air Force to counterattack or carry him out, he would have been waiting in vain. The RAF made sure their Italian counterparts played no part in the Battle of Bardia. In fact, the RAF so aggressively bombed the ships near the harbor that it was blocked for the foreseeable future due to ships sunk at its entrance. As the prisoners were being organized, which included four divisional commanders, McKay realized that the number of men defending Bardia were actually double what British intelligence told him. This was one more lesson to remember. Meanwhile, Australian losses were 456 men. But equally sobering was the fact that, as Robertson's 19th Brigade headed to Tobruk with Krieg's 7th Armored Division, only six heavy infantry tanks followed in tow. With the numerous setbacks suffered by the Italians throughout the second half of 1940, December was destined to be a month of decisions. On December 10th, Hitler ordered Operation Mittelmeer, which meant the Luftwaffe would now be intervening in the Mediterranean. The next day, December 11th, Hitler canceled Operation Felix, his attack on Gibraltar. Clearly, those men were going to be needed elsewhere. But as the British pushed the Italians back during the opening days of Operation Compass, more decisions were quickly reached in Berlin. Within days, three more directives were given to the German general staff. Directive 19, Plan Anton, a contingency plan for the occupation of Vichy, France. Clearly, if the British continue to push the Italians out of North Africa, they may consider a jump to southern France. Directive 20, Operation Marita, Germany's invasion of Greece. And Directive 21, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia. However, Marita and Barbarossa were to be coordinated to ensure maximum support. And such was the German general staff's confidence. And really, who could blame them? General List's 12th Army, 18 divisions strong, was estimated to need 78 days exactly to assemble in Romania. They were then to cross the Danube, speed through Bulgaria, and invade Greece. Not taking into consideration the struggles of their Italian allies, the war there was predicted to take no more than three or four weeks tops. Then List's men were given another four weeks to refit, head north, and then take their position for the invasion of Russia, scheduled for mid-May. If you haven't been smacked with the hubris yet, try this. Russia was also predicted to fall before the autumn. And then, and only then, Nazi Germany, the true master of Europe, would turn its attention on Britain and bring it low. The Germans were coming to North Africa and to the Mediterranean, and the British would feel their presence on land 
sea, and air. These latest results of Operation Compass were added to those of the Battle of Britain and to those of the Battle of Taranto. And, at this point in the war, Britain could look anyone in the eye with prideful determination. But, in reality, things had not changed. Not that much. The Axis powers were fully mobilized, the British were still gearing up, and the U.S., besides sending supplies and old destroyers, was still in the role of enthusiastic cheerleader. But all that was about to change with Roosevelt's Lend-Lease Act. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Uh, I am very sorry this episode took so long to get out. Um, I'm just getting over the flu, literally out of it, and couldn't speak for two weeks, so sorry about that. Um, just to remind everybody, if you want to be in the newspaper contest, just send me uh, an email to ray at net. And I'll include that for you since I've been out of it for a whole month. Um, I'll wait a couple more weeks before I do the drawing. Um, and again, don't forget to send me an email about the tour if you're interested in that as well. Um, for you members out there, I just put out episode number seven, the second of the guinea pig club. So number three should be coming out soon. And um, just to hurry up and get this one out there, um, what I'll do, if it's okay with everyone, is I will thank my um, the people who donated and all the, the, the new members that I have. It's a very long list, but I'll do that on episode 77. I just want to get this one out as soon as I can. So I'm terribly sorry. The month of April totally got away from me, but I will see you as soon as I can with the Battle of Tobruk. Take care, everyone.